0: RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all ever Okay, start the thing. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of R N M D, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. Today we are going to continue our conversation on healthcare through the lens of socialism, communism, and capitalism. Um, this conversation is really important to me, so. Um I think this is going to be a three-parter. I thought it was going to be a two-parter, but I think we're going to I'm going to have a third um part that's going to be a little shorter. Um because our conversation kept going. We had a lot to say, we had a lot to talk about and we probably could have talked a lot longer, honestly. Um so, check out my guest uh he has his own podcast. He remains anonymous for fear obviously of retaliation from his hospital talking about socialism or marxism um and healthcare. Uh, so he has a podcast, m M&M m Podcast, Marks and Medicine Podcast. Um, I'm going to put all of the links uh, to his Instagram and his podcast in the show notes. So check that out. Um, and here we go. <music> So let's say we tried Medicare for all and we're going to control these companies and we're going to have a set rate and say, you know, you get $30,000 for an ICU stay and that's it. You know what I mean? Um, okay. But then there, there is this, at least from our s- Standpoint, and that's why I love this with like doctors and nurses because I don't know how it is for you guys, but for me, when I have Medicare Medicaid patients, the documentation, some of their care, it's a lot more complicated. Um, and I personally, with family members, have navigated these systems. Uh, you know, I I had uh, Medicaid as a kid. My grandma was on Medicare at the end of her life, and. To call, get someone on the phone, get an efficient answer, uh, find a doctor who accepts it, et cetera, it is very difficult. So what do you say to people that say, you know, this is not the answer either, involving the government in it is just going to muddle it even more?
1: I say that these are all social constructs, meaning that you go to Canada, you have a hospital visit. I mean, you, you talk to people in Canada. They're like, "What do you mean? You talk to an insurance company? Like, what? What? Why would you do? Like, why?" They go and they get care, and that's it. They leave. There's, they don't pay for anything. I mean, unless it's for stuff that the their public payer doesn't cover, like they don't cover vision, uh, dental, they don't cover uh, prescription medications, things like that. You know, um, but for your basic care, otherwise, there's there's no insurance company to talk to. The fact that Medicare and Medicaid have these mechanisms or like they're all hoops to jump through mm-hmm. they don't want people to sign up for medicaid because that's money out of the state's coffers so they make it impossible you have to like go through all of these hoops my my girlfriend was on uh, medicaid for a little while because she lost her job during the pandemic like it was such a pain in the fucking ass Mm -hmm. and it's like that on purpose Mm -hmm. it's the same when you're trying to qualify for unemployment you have to like reapply every two weeks Mm -hmm. or something and it's this whole rigmarole Mm -hmm. disability i mean think of any of these means tested kind of social services they're made difficult to get on purpose Mm -hmm. because they don't want people to have them Mm -hmm. um so that's what I say to those people. Oh, by the way, like, have you ever tried to talk to your private insurance company about any of this stuff? It's even worse. Mm-hmm. Talk about prior authorization, uh, reviewing, like, oh, hey, we can't do, we won't cover this medication because he didn't try this, this, and this one first. And the, then the doctor says, well, we are, I don't think those work in this situation. I think this is best for the patient. It was was insurance company say, hmm, we don't care because we don't want to pay for that. We're going to do step therapy. We're going to try this first. If that doesn't work, we will try this and then this. Even though the doctor, the nurse practitioner, the APP, whoever it is, they may know what's best for the patient. What the fuck does the insurance know? They don't know mm-hmm. anything. Again, same thing. People with power who don't understand what the patient really needs. Mm-hmm. It, all goes, it all goes back to the same premise. Mm-hmm. So what I say to people who are frustrated with Medicare, Medicaid, it's impossible to navigate, all this, it's like that on purpose. Um, if you actually created a system, again, like some of these other places had, where there is a true public payer and you don't have to interact with insurance, all you do is go you know, to the hospital, for example, you get care and you leave and that's it. Literally, that's it. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a pretty funny video that was circulating around not that long ago of people in England being interviewed about the healthcare system like there and in America Mm. and their reactions to the American story. They're like horrified Mm
2: -hmm. at
1: at some of these stories. I I recommend you go and watch that, like everybody, because truly like we are so inculcated with this thought that this is just the way it is. This America number one is the best system that exists. And It's not. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry because the people who see it from the outside, they're like, yo, what the fuck? Is America doing out there? Wow, I didn't even realize mm-hmm. so yeah that's just one example uh, that we do how we do things compared to other places, but
0: yeah um I have great insurance uh, for the first time in my life. I was a nurse with no health insurance for years, years and years and years, mm-hmm. and then Obamacare happened and then I got health insurance uh and uh and then from there I got into the union but um, I have amazing insurance. I, um, I mean, I'm sure you're aware. I injured my ankle pretty badly, um, and I am on disability. I'm
1: praying for little piggy. Okay.
0: I know. Oh my <laughs> god! It's like it's just the longest process. Um, but like navigating disability, even through a union, has been very difficult. I applied for the New York City disability very difficult. I mean, you want to talk about first of all someone like me who knows the healthcare system is tech savvy. English is my first language, right? And I am finding it almost impossible. I mean, it's it's it, like you said it's impossible on purpose, right? They had me uh they know that I can't walk. I haven't walked in 3 months. Uh, they had me truck about an hour away from my house. Can't drive, can't, um, and the doctor who worked there, he didn't look at the foot. He didn't ask me any questions. He just said, you know, what's your pain zero to 10. And it just documented, it was like, can you get here? It was a test. It was like, can, can you show up to this appointment or not? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, we want to talk about, um, I, I, Took an ambulance. I was in the hospital for a while. I had a major operation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I call my insurance company, and I have, again, great insurance. And I say, you know, how much do you pay for this kind of surgery? How much do you pay for this? What do you pay out? I You know, I called EMS. What do you pay? Oh, they. We don't know. The guy literally on the phone said, "You just have to take care of yourself. You know, think about your health first, and you figure it out later." That's <laughs> he literally said that to me, and I said oh to him, God. "Sir, I'm
1: giving y- you fucking wellness tips about yeah, yeah, <laughs> your ambulance ride, yeah, and your, oh my
0: yeah." God. I'm like, I mean, I severed my tibial nerve. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm asking you about something yes. that could. Um, impact my financial uh, situation for the rest of my life if this is done wrong right um and and it was just like we can't tell you and then you you talk to the hospital they can't tell you how much anything costs either so it's just this big surprise bill and you just hope that you don't have to declare bankruptcy at some point
1: it it's it's a disgusting system, oh yeah, by the way, number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States is medical bills mm-hmm. that's something a lot of people don't know and um medical debt is only 81 billion I mean, 81 billion dollars is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. Obviously it is. But um compared to, I don't know, like our military budget every year, compared to how much we're spending in subsidies to these health insurance companies through Obamacare, we were talking about that earlier.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um so just subsidies to private insurance or private the private sector in general, oil and gas is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, we could erase everybody's medical debt very easily. Mm -hmm. Um, talking about erasing student debt, that's like in the trillions and we're even, that's even on the table of discussion. Just, just erase medical debt too. I mean, it's that, it's literally bankrupting more people than anything else. Mm -hmm. I mean, your, your story is horrifying. Um, but it's one among many, Many, right. right. Of very, very similar stories. Yes. Um, oh, that's another thing that some of those private insurances and like, um, in like England and Canada, they pay for ambulance. Uh, It's like ambulance insurance, part of their, you know, optional insurance that you can get. So that's, and that's another thing too, that we kind of talked about in one of our episodes about private equity on our podcast is all of these hidden fees that you don't see the, the life flight uh, that took, that got you to the level one trauma center. That's awesome. And you made it and you're intubated and now you're, you're doing great and you're back home with your family um, oh what's this bill here? $40,000 for the helicopter. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought I had great insurance. Hmm, guess it doesn't matter. Right. This is what I say to people uh who say, "Oh, I like my insurance. My insurance is really good through my employer. I don't I don't want to have a, you know, government insurance." Like, okay, it is way bigger than just the insurance policy that you have. Mm-hmm. Like first off. Second, I mean, do you really love your insurance to the point that you still want to pay all these out-of-pocket costs? No matter how good it is, you're really not going to know how good it is until you use it. And a lot of people realize when it's too late that, oh, my insurance actually isn't very good Mm -hmm. uh, at all.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're exactly right. You, you don't know what you have until you try to use it. Um, I mean, your little physical here or there might be covered and then you're happy with it, but wait until you have, you know, a huge surgery or a major injury. Um, I mean, wait till
1: you go to the emergency department, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And they didn't even ask me for my insurance card. It was just like, you know, who cares? We'll bill you later, you know? Um, but like you said, my story is one of many, many, many. Um, and I mean, I've worked with patients long enough to see this time and time again. I mean, I, I've worked home care, uh, for a long time and saw, families struggling uh you know with medications that were under patent and they could only have the one and it was the one thing that might stop you know the advancement of their als or something like that and they can't afford it as a family um and i i literally it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking i literally saw a family uh this is the the same family the als uh case and they They basically did away with like a lot of other things uh, in their life so that they could pay this $300 for 11 months at a time. Uh, They had it was a $300 copay for this medication that he needed. And then for the one month at the end, they had paid into it enough. Uh, then they could get it for $30 because they had technically paid into it. But then January one, it started over again. Yep. So yep. it was like they were trapped. So they, he, you know, eventually he was like, I can't keep doing this to my family. They also had debt collectors calling from the hospital because he was in the ICU for weeks um, at one point intubated and eventually trached and, and sent home. And uh, it, I, literally was sitting next to his wife and she said he you know she was a teacher he most of the money and she said he's not working anymore what do you expect us to do and the person on the other line blue cross blue shield literally said well he has life insurance right so Oh, when he dies, god. we'll get our money. Basically, was the point, and I'm sure, I'm sure that they continued to pursue that. And again, this is one story of many. And and I, I wish, you know, because of patient confidentiality, you can't go into all the specific examples. But I wish we could because people would see how terrible the system is.
1: Yes, uh, that that ju- that turns my stomach. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, but it also doesn't surprise me yeah. at all. Right. Um, I'll tell a quick story. Um, this 23-year-old kid in the ED when I was working there as an intern came in at like three in the morning with his dad. He had chronic pancreatitis. I don't remember the origin. It wasn't alcohol. I think it was um, maybe stones. I can't, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But anyways, he was about three days away from being able to refill his uh, oxycodone prescription, which he absolutely needs uh, because he has chronic pancreatitis, one of the most painful awful mm-hmm. things you could my uncle has chronic pancreatitis and it is terrible um holy shit he's in so much pain like all the time pretty much um so this kid miserable you know has to come to the th- th- also this is the state of our healthcare system has to come to the ed for pain medication because like that's just how it is here i guess right and i have to tell this kid like our policy is that i can't give him anything Uh, to take home. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can treat his pain there, obviously, but I can't give him anything to take home. Mm -hmm. Um, And they tried to call Walmart, like where he gets his prescription filled. And they told him like, Hey, nothing we can do. You know, you're two, three days away from being able to refill. Sorry. Guess you'll, you know, yeah. What what do you do in that situation? Guess you just have to uh, suck it up, I guess. Mm -hmm. Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. Figure it out. And like explaining this to the kid, to this kid and his dad, and just like, the the light in his dad's eyes was just like gone Mm -hmm. and you could you could tell he'd heard this so many times before it's just like the same shit Mm -hmm.
2: it's
1: like no and i can just feel like what he's thinking just like nobody cares Mm -hmm. about my son Mm -hmm. nobody cares about our situation Mm -hmm. and i will never forget that the look on his face because i just i felt so powerless Mm -hmm. to it and I hate that feeling too. And I'm sure you feel it. It's like, yes. you know what these patients need. Again, we know what these patients need and they can't get it because mm-hmm. we don't have the power to actually give it to them. Another quick example, the chronic pain clinic, uh, which we have to go through as uh, anesthesia I, residents. I,
0: I used to work in a clinic. I used to work in a multi-specialty clinic and we ran pain
1: clinic. Really? Mm-hmm. So so you're, you're well aware of this, I'm sure. I, I hope you agree with what I'm about to say. I would say that I don't want to give a a direct number, but I would say a large percentage of patients, what they need more than anything, include whether it's uh, opioids for chronic pain management, medical marijuana, whatever it is. What most, a lot of people need more than anything, is money and social support.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Rather than anything they're getting in chronic pain clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, because what I heard overwhelmingly, because when you actually talk to people and not just, you know, like go, oh, how's your pain? Need a prescription? Need a refill? Okay, see you later. That's a lot of people's experience. Mm-hmm. If you actually talk to these people, what they say is, I was doing great in physical therapy. I was feeling so good. And then my insurance stopped paying for it. Right. And now I'm in pain again. Right. And now I can't afford to go back to physical therapy or I don't have time because uh, I can't fit it in my work schedule because I have to work or else I'll fucking starve. Because again, that's capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I have no support. Otherwise, we, our, our social safety net is uh, almost non-existent when you compare it to a lot of European countries. Um, and, you know, I get guess I'm fucked. Like, literally, that's the attitude of these people. Like, I, I don't want to take opioids anymore right. i don't want to be on oxycodone i don't want to be on this shit i don't even want to be on medical marijuana but i'll try it because uh it's better than opioids right. probably yes that's how desperate these people are and you start to realize people need social support people need to be able to pay their bills like that's what they need more than anything and i probably would have went into chronic pain in a different healthcare system mm-hmm. right in a in a system where i could say yeah you actually do just need physical therapy or like whatever you need uh psychosocial support mm-hmm. uh whereas i you know i can't prescribe a um, a 500 dollar check uh all i can prescribe is you know a procedure or uh, you know, medication or, basically yeah, yeah yeah
0: the patients that i saw in pain clinic they were actively discouraged to come back they were not given any of the tools that they need, including a lot of times medication, um, because the hospital system does not like to deal with them. Like you said, they, they need a lot of social support sometimes. Um, and they, uh, at least where I was, they, it was a Medicare-Medicaid clinic. Uh, they don't get a lot of reimbursement. They it, It's like they, again, hoops to jump through. And you want to talk about wait times. I mean, uh, a neurology appointment oh at one of these clinics is – three, four, five, six months out, and if you miss it, yep. too bad, and you don't get your medication, and now you're, you know, <laughs> now what? Now what do you do? I mean, these these patients are difficult to track down sometimes. It's, it's a lot of homeless population. It's, you know, seizure medications. and um, Oh, yeah.
1: I'm sure there's a whole other dimension in New York City that, like, I don't see where I am for me, it's, a, and I'm sure you do it to some extent, it's the patients out in the rural areas who have to take buses, like, literally, like, an hour and a half, two hours yeah. to come see their specialist in the city. Right. And, like, of course, they're missing their appointments sometimes. It's not because, like, oh, they just didn't feel like going today. Like, people are, I just don't understand the way people think sometimes. Like, oh, like, lazy person right. didn't want to come in for their appointment. Right. No, it's probably because they couldn't get a ride, or they missed the bus, yeah. or there's some other gigantic. Oh, like so nobody could watch their kid. Yeah, like there's all these hoops that people who are just trying to fucking make it out right. here have to jump through, and like we shame these people yes. when they don't don't do what we like. It's disgusting.
0: Yeah, I mean, a great example of that, and this just happens to be a doctor. I'm not bashing doctors, but I had this, you know, kind of more bougie. Please do. We
1: we suck <laughs> to, to a pretty extreme extent. I mean, there's there's some nerves that we can talk about, too. That's not the point of this. We can go there sometime, yeah. (laughs) Um, We'll we'll have a friendly duel someday. Yeah,
0: okay, fine. (laughs) All right, don't send me point two five, please. Please, I'm begging you. (laughs) Okay, Um, anyway, uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of these patients they have accessoride right at least for us I don't know if you have that where you are but it's like a, mm-hmm. a, it's a free it's the it's the same price as a subway it's like 2 25 or something and you can call mm-hmm. them if you qualify but again you have to jump through the hoops and make sure that you qualify but once you do that you can call them and say I have a doctor's appointment and they'll take you for the price of a subway ride and, and in the car the problem is accessoride can be up to two hours late that's their and that's their window mm-hmm. and that's what they tell you and and then when they do show up they're gonna pick up other people along the way you have no control yeah. of when you show up and we had a lady in a wheelchair she came in for gi clinic and uh, the doctor you know said oh 15 minute grace period she was a half an hour late and she took accessoride. so that actually to me was pretty impressive that she made it
1: it's, yeah it's not bad not
0: bad good time um and he was like no i'm not gonna see her and i like Lost it because I was like, you don't understand how difficult. I cannot go out there and tell this lady she's not going to be seen. You, you this is a, a whole day ordeal for her, and she can't. Yes, she comes here. She's in a wheelchair. It's even difficult for her to use the restroom while she's in the waiting room, etc. She has to have someone come with her. She's just trying to get to her GI doctor, and now you're going to turn around and and refuse to see her because of this accessoride. Like it's just ridiculous.
1: Yeah, people, like, take entire days off of work to see, like, all of their specialists, mm-hmm. right? So if they miss one of them, yeah, that, like, really throws a wrench into, uh, I don't know, like, their ability to, yeah, maintain their health. Mm-hmm. Uh, just one example. But I wanted to talk about, um, on that vein, means testing in general. You said people can qualify, basically, for this access ride, right? Mm-hmm. We have something similar here. Um but you have to qualify, right? You have to like meet certain criteria. Right. This is what I think about in terms of Medicaid. You have to, every state has a little bit different criteria, but you have to, you know, meet this income level mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. Medicare, uh, yeah, there's an age requirement or, you know, if you're young and have ESRD, whatever, there's all those like uh, ex- separate examples. But again, you have to meet some requirement. Um, CHIP, same thing. You have to meet some requirement. Uh, Cobra, you have to meet some requirement. All of these have, and if you want to expand that to uh, like TANF or, uh, um, or not TANF, sorry, that's the old one, Um, food stamps, basically. Um, If you want to expand this to um, housing subsidies, all of this falls within the same umbrella, which is means testing. And what that, and that meaning you have to qualify, you have to meet certain criteria. And what that creates, for better or for worse, mostly for worse, is a way of thinking amongst the people, right? A way of thinking that gets people to look around and say, why do they get it, but I don't,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? I work hard, you know, I, I pay taxes, I go to work every day, I put in my time. Why, why do they get it, but I don't? Mm-hmm. And what that creates is resentment an immense resentment among these people who we've already described have actually probably the same interests in a lot of ways, which is to take care of your family, take care of the people you love, have some, some decision-making ability at work, the place you spend most of your time uh, and to live a meaningful life. Right? So what this means testing does is brings people apart. It, um, when you have a healthcare system that gives some people healthcare for uh, a really cheap price, but everybody else can go fuck themselves. Well, that's not very inclusive. Mm -hmm. That kind of sends the wrong message. Mm -hmm. That's another part of the reason that um, a single payer is so important to me too. I won't talk about an NHS right now. We'll just keep it in terms of Medicare for all. But um, if everybody gets health insurance, who's going to look around and say, why did they get it? But I don't. Mm -hmm. That's the power of, a, of universal programs, right? Universal programs where everybody gets it. Doesn't matter your income level. Doesn't matter um, where you live. It doesn't matter, you know, if you completed three years at a community college and gave back to the, like all of these stupid requirements that we hear all the time. None of that shit matters. Are you alive? You get health insurance.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The government will pay for it. That's it. That's, that's the kind of shit that I want to see because universality um, universality pulls those strings, right? Pulls, it pulls us all together in ways that actually does create solidarity. Because if the healthcare system that we've created that's a public payer for everybody is really good, that means it's really good for all of us. It's not like, hey, you have great insurance. That's awesome. I'm really happy for you. I have pretty good insurance, but all these people don't even have insurance, right? Some of these people are incredibly underinsured. So like they have insurance, but they can't access it because it's too expensive or for whatever other reason. So if if we create that public system that's good for everybody, that means it's good for you. And that's how you actually create Community within society is when everybody is benefiting from these things together. Not some people get it only if you deserve it, because that's kind of how that's kind of how we uh, kind of how we stratify these things. Oh, you live. Some people live in really good houses. Some people are homeless. Um, and you're probably wondering, oh, so do you think that everybody should we should give everybody housing? Yeah, I think we should give everybody housing. You know how to solve homelessness? Give people homes. It's not that hard. It's a very simple concept. You wanna solve uh, the problem that people are uninsured, give them health insurance. It's really not that hard. Um, There are more empty houses in this country than homeless people. About 500,000 people a night sleep out in the streets every night. And that's an old statistic. It's probably more than that now with COVID. Um, so, So am I suggesting everybody should be housed? Yes, give everybody a house. Oh, does that mean everybody should get food? Yes, that's what I think. All of these needs in society, food, water, housing, healthcare, education, uh, childcare, elder care. I even include infrastructure in these kinds of things. Um, Think of access ride that we were talking about before. Transportation is a basic human need because when you don't have it, you suffer, right? That's a great example. uh, When these things aren't provided to people, uh, based on need, it's based on ability to, to pay. That's what a market does. That's that's the type of healthcare system and really society that we have. It's a market-based system, and how we prioritize needs in a market-based system is based on the ability to pay. Under socialism, the way that we prioritize need, uh, that prioritize um, resource distribution is based on needs. Mm-hmm. That that's the main that's the main difference in how we prioritize production is do we prioritize profit or do we, do we, do we prioritize meeting the needs of society? That's that's what socialism is.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask you the same question again, but about this. Okay, so if we're talking about if everybody had healthcare care we would have more sense of community. There would be less animosity towards poor people, which there definitely is, especially in the lower middle class uh, that doesn't qualify, makes too much uh, to access Medicare, Medicaid, but they don't make enough Mm -hmm. to actually benefit. Um, Okay. So again, do you think that there's a Mr. Burns type person saying like it benefits us, it benefits the wealthy to keep these people pitted against each other, to take advantage of the situation because it deflects from the real problem.
1: When you think about it in terms of individuals, I'm sure there are some people out there that are like, yeah, we got to keep the system going because, uh yeah, like I'm rich and powerful and I don't want that to change. You know, maybe it's, it's just that overt for some people. But again, I don't think of it, in terms of individuals. I think of it in terms of structures, right? I think of it in terms of institutions. Like,
0: is there people keeping those structures purposefully though? Uh,
1: I would say yes. Not all of them, like I would say some subconsciously, some consciously, Mm -hmm. I would say. Do I think there's a mass conspiracy again, like, is there a mass conspiracy or like cabal of like, no, I don't I don't think there's some like, yeah, you know, group of people at the top who literally are like just pointing fingers, you do this, you do this, this is how we keep the system going. Like, no, I don't I don't think that's how it is. But in individual uh, sectors, institutions, are there like power players and people who are making those big decisions who may be thinking along those lines? Maybe, but um, again, to me, it's not about the individuals. If it weren't Jeff Bezos, it would be somebody else, Mm -hmm. right? If it weren't this hospital CEO, it would be somebody else. The the problem is not the person. Um, As much as I hate my hospital CEO, he's a... um, I'm not even going to say anything, Mm -hmm. actually.
0: Yeah, better Um,
1: off. As much as I I hate that bastard, but um, it's not even about that. Because if it weren't him, it would be somebody else. So you don't change the person you change the structure, you change, you, you ask the question, should CEOs make that much money? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, should there be this much inequality? Should there be this much disparity?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I, I guess sometimes I get, I, I don't, I agree with you. Of course it's, if it's not one person, it's going to be another. Right. Um, but I do wonder sometimes if you know that system that is there, the structure, like you mentioned, that does benefit them immensely, right? And they would be stupid to not know that or acknowledge it, right? I mean,
1: oh, they definitely know it, right? Um, One thousand percent, they know.
0: It. Yeah, and I, I doubt very seriously that, that that they haven't. It hasn't crossed their mind that if we all band together, they could lose their salary, their power very easily. It could happen quickly um, if we all just got together and and demanded better, right? Um, The
1: the thing they're scared of more than anything um, is worker organizing. Mm -hmm. More than anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the the tool that has been shown to work time and time again in multiple revolutions and multiple instances of civil strife, whatever you want to call it, protest activism is the general strike.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Nothing beats the general strike or just the strike in general. I mean, not, not all strikes are created equal. Uh, you know more about this than I do, but um, nothing really has beat the general strike so far, because again, where does value come from? Value comes from labor, all values created by labor. And when there's no labor, there's no value. And when there's no value, there's no profit. Mm-hmm. And the capitalists understand this very well. All the hospital leaders, all the, all the administrators, all the pencil necks uh, sitting up there again on the 13th floor, they all understand this very well. Mm-hmm. And for some people, it is to the point where they're like, yeah, we got to bring those laborers, those workers down so we can survive. For some people, it's like, we just got to do what we got to do to keep the hospital afloat. And it's like less sinister, mm-hmm. I guess, in that way. But again, that doesn't really matter because the point is the actions of the system are hurting the workers. So even if you think you're doing some virtuous thing as an administrator of like, yeah, we're cutting costs and like making this a more efficient and streamlined system, that's people's lives, man. Mm -hmm. Like that's how I think about it. When you're telling that nurse, you're going to pick up another patient because we're short today um, or this is just the new system now. Yeah, you have four ICU patients now. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Good luck. Um, maybe for some, that's making the system more efficient. For others, uh, that's their life. That's their livelihood. That's not counting the people who just straight up get fired because they're cutting on labor costs. For the hospital, nice. We saved, uh, saved 500,000 dollars in labor costs this year. We're, we're looking great. For those people, I just lost my job. Mm-hmm. I mean again when you think of it in terms like this capitalism plays with people's lives so that some people can get immensely rich that is the simplest disgusting feature that I can that that I can highlight here it is that people get immensely rich or you know people are able to experience the uh brilliance of enterprise and like feeling like a business person great good for you but that's people's lives that end up getting hurt when, you, when they don't get to be involved in the decision making. Mm-hmm.
0: So how do we unthink what we've been told? I mean, as a country, how do we, how do we approach uh, relearning and, and trying to make a change? Because I mean, you talk to even nurses and some of them are anti-union. I mean, some of them who are in unions, you know? Right. I mean, what do we do?
1: Uh, if I knew, I'd be the president, right? probably. Yeah, that's... Uh, I'd be the. I'd be the dictator of <laughs> communist USA, of course. Uh, <laughs> if I knew. Yeah. Um, <laughs> organize. I mean, is the always the number one? Yeah. it's. Um, there's more of us than them. Um, if we have the ability to control labor, then we have the ability to control a lot. Um, and it's going to take a massive effort uh, on a national scale. Mm-hmm. I think. The individual unions are very important for the, in, those individual workers, and we need that. But if you're talking about a national movement toward a different kind of health care, let alone a different society, let's talk about a different health care system. Right, right? It, it,
0: which is easier and still really difficult.
1: <laughs> still extremely daunting, yes. I mean, it's, it's not, to me, in, in my opinion, it's not going to be through nurses' unions and doctors' unions and pharmacy unions. And it's going to be a one big healthcare worker union. Mm-hmm. It's going to be all of us together mm-hmm. um, because it's the only possible way that we can take these people on. Mm-hmm. Um, and by people, I mean the hospital CEOs, the drug manufacturers, the insurance companies, all of these people, the, the pharmacy benefit managers. I mean, the list goes on. the The medical industrial complex is an absolutely gargantuan, Mm -hmm. uh, enormous, (laughs) just system of complexity that we're, uh, just to plug my pod real quick, what we're doing a uh, probably four or five part series on, Mm -hmm. just like the medical industrial complex, Mm -hmm. if you're interested in learning more for anybody out there. But um, yeah, I mean, the only way really to have a chance against this, this, uh, I mean, admittedly small minority compared to the number of healthcare workers there are, the only way is to be able to exert force through our own labor. Um, And that's going to take a massive organizing effort that probably will start small and needs to scale up to the level of, I would argue for a national integrated union, something like the IWW for healthcare workers.
0: I mean, you just basically stated my whole, uh, you know, purpose for this project basically. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the point. Uh, I mean, doctors and nurses working together and it's not just doctors and nurses, obviously everybody. Um, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, eventually that's, that's, that's the key here is to just show like, we're all getting screwed. We're all getting screwed, including the patient. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we could use our forces for good. We could, we could band together. People won't do that because, you know, sometimes they prefer the infighting because um, it's easier. Uh, but I, I think we can break down a lot of this stuff. And I mean, we've done it. We've we've went over a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot of the nurses that, you know, we have these really great conversations and we have a lot of great doctors who, who come in and give their perspective too. And a, a lot of the nurses, I think, walk away with, uh, you know, there could be a sense of like, oh, well, the doctors get everything, right? They're, they're in this they get a special room, they get food, They sometimes mm-hmm. you see them on night shift sleeping, et cetera, right? Again, no shade. I'm just saying, like, nurses can be very frustrated with the doctors. Um, and then when they start learning, you know, or like I did, start learning uh, about how many hours are they pulling in and did they have clinic that day before their night shift and maybe that's why they're sleeping and, uh, you know, these arbitrary evaluations. And I mean, I could go on. Uh, then it's like we start to have a little bit more common ground because it it also is the reverse here in New York. I mean, some of the residents can, especially the interns feel very a lot of animosity towards the nurses because we make good money, we're a union, uh, and they are like, oh, the nurses get everything. And then when we say like, well, look at what the hospital's asking from us, like look at how many patients I have, look at my documentation that literally no one reads, you know um, and it's just for reimbursement and whatever. I mean, it just creates this like common ground and, and ultimately it's to fight the system or burn it down safely or whatever we're gonna end up doing.
1: It's easier to regurgitate the myths or the, uh, I guess the propaganda. I just like to use the word propaganda. People think of propaganda as like, I don't know, cold war, like posters and stuff, Mm -hmm. but propaganda is literally all around us. Like things you read, I mean, people think they are progressive and free thinking and whatnot by reading like Vox, the New York Times, or like these kinds of things. The I mean, the New York Times, it's called the paper of record for a reason. It's because it leads the conversation, it leads the mode of thinking across among the people. I mean, I don't want to sound like Trump here, but like the the mainstream media as an entity is the propaganda arm of the state. Mm-hmm. Like that is very clear if you if you study how and and I'm not saying like the New York Times is the only, I mean, Fox News is just absolute garbage. Mm-hmm. Breitbart. There's way worse publications out there, and the New York Times does good work. What I'm saying is, when it comes to leading the mode of thinking among the people, it is the paper of record because it tells people what to think. Mm-hmm. Manufacturers consent. This is a common refrain that you've probably heard before, but that is really the function of these big newspapers, CNN. Uh, MSNBC, Fox News, their goal is to manufacture the consent of the people uh, to what basically the business class and the politicians and government want to get done, more or less. I
0: mean, the perfect example of this was, I don't know if you were following the New York Times coverage of Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, in the early parts of his campaign Joe Biden had won zero states Bernie had won uh and all you saw was Biden Biden Biden
1: exactly just shoving exactly. it down it is throat. it is a perfect example and they their ability to do that um changes the outcome of an election uh history yeah of election <laughs> of, of history I mean Bernie and and think about this one too the uh the rat Pete Buttigieg Uh, rat boy that we love um he was going around saying that he won that first um primary Mm -hmm. in iowa Mm -hmm. and he did not it ended up that bernie sanders had won uh because they because the buddha judge campaign was using some other metric that wasn't commonly used like oh look we won and every other metric said Bernie Sanders won. Well, guess what all the newspapers and the mainstream media was saying? Oh, Buttigieg won, mm-hmm. Buttigieg won. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just very clear that they want, and again, Pete Buttigieg represents uh, neoliberal revivalism in in millennials, which he he really sh- is a disgusting person when it comes to that, because he should recognize that millennials and Gen Zers, young people in general, are a progressive group. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they don't want the same old, same old, and that's exactly who he was representing. Um, Bernie Sanders won that primary. He won the next three primaries. Mm -hmm. And then it gets to what you're saying, Biden, Biden, Biden. I mean, it's just so obvious if you're paying attention. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of people aren't, unfortunately, not because they don't want to sometimes it's because a lot of people don't have time to pay attention. They don't have the strength or the energy to pay attention. They already feel, feel powerless in their lives every day. And, when I have bad encounters with um, other healthcare workers, like with nurses or with other doctors or whoever, I don't see it as that's a bad person. I see it as this is a person who, like, th- this is a person who feels so powerless in every moment of their life. Whenever they can feel power at all, by like you know berating me, yelling at me, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, or making me feel small for some insignificant thing, ultimately. These are moments that people seize upon because they feel completely powerless in every other moment of their life. Yes. They feel powerless at work because, again, there's people above them telling them exactly what to do and for how long they're going to do it and for what pay. They feel completely powerless at home maybe because maybe they have... Uh, teenage kids who don't listen to them. Maybe they have a bunch of tiny kids at home that are keeping them up at night and they're not sleeping. Maybe they're having marital problems. Maybe they're taking care of a parent and that's not going very well. Maybe they just got a diagnosis that they're not telling anybody about. I mean, maybe they have bills that are piling up and they're not paying back. There's, and It was to your point, what you're saying before. We, we have no idea what other people are going through uh, when you see the doctor on call sleeping at night, yeah, yeah, I don't know, maybe uh, they just did a liver transplant the day before and they barely slept. Like that, it's stuff like that. But when you start to recognize it and have empathy, mm-hmm. right? That's when people start to look around and be like, actually, maybe we do kind of want similar things here. We all do, just want to have a good work-life balance, take care of our families, and live a meaningful existence. I mean, really, what else can you ask for? Mm-hmm. And I don't think you can accomplish any of those things without, admittedly, immense structural change that comes through the way that we organize how we produce healthcare, which is that workers should own and control the means through which we produce healthcare, mm-hmm. not the people that we never see mm-hmm. besides when they walk around and smile and say, Hey, how you doing? Looking good out there. Any issues? Mm-hmm. And then you tell them the issues and the issues don't get fixed. because They don't actually fucking care. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that powerlessness is, I mean, you hit the, you hit it right on the head. I mean, this is something that we discuss, you know, within the nursing community. And actually I'm putting together an episode about this topic alone because this is a cycle. I mean, not to get sidetracked, uh, but this is a cycle within nursing uh, because they not only do nurses feel powerless. I mean, we we have been trained literally to have no autonomy. We have to check every order. We have to ask for permission to do everything. So it's not only the hospital system. I mean, it's the structure of nursing. And if you want to go back a a decade or, you know, beyond... Now we're talking about attendings who berated nurses, who humiliated them, who uh, made them feel terrible. And I was trained by those nurses. And I kind of caught the tail end of that. And there's been a culture shift since, I think, and it's getting better. But it's a learned behavior, right? So those nurses, those old school nurses, a lot of them berate interns because they were berated by uh, attendings. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like their retaliation in a way. And then the intern gets older and hates nurses now. And it just keeps going. And even though now I see newer nurses who were not a part of this, and I've never seen an attending yell at them ever. They do it too, because it's, it's the culture now. Um, and Mm -hmm. it, that is a difficult cycle. It's difficult.
1: Yeah. But that, again, that's the, Some people would say probably in like a a wellness lecture that you hear that, you know, we all just need to um, try to be better to each other and just, you know, open up and be more positive, like, you know, the psychopolitics of neoliberalism, which is that like everything is perfect, actually, and that, you know, if there's a problem in your life, it's probably because of something you're doing. So you should. Um, drink more water. You should exercise more, do more yoga. You should sleep at a good time. You should like meditate (laughs) and you all this bullshit that like, you know, you can only really do if you have the luxury and the privilege to do it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Again, an individual solution to a massive structural problem. It's not going to fix anything. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, that's Um, the ANA's answer to COVID for us is meditate and take some time for yourself. And, you know, just it's (laughs) fine. It'll be fine. Read a book about this. We're having a lecture about wellness. Just don't think about it. Just don't, it. don't think yeah, about it. Yeah. Just think
1: about something. Yeah. Else. It's
0: like, it's like that Italian grandmother who's just like, sweep it under the rug. Everything's fine. <laughs> don't rock the yes. boat. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, I mean these, and again, I, we have to ask for major structural changes in not just one realm, like the American Nurses Association, for example, like we need to demand more for them. You know, I mean, they're getting massive amounts of money and where were they during COVID? I didn't see anything from them.
1: Oh, yeah. I I know you did a poll recently on the ANA and the AMA. And like, are you satisfied with it? And it was like, what, 98% or something? of like both.
0: It was like nobody was satisfied with it. Yeah. I want to figure out what to do with that. I want to I wanted to write like an open letter. um, And I wanted to get somebody else on board and like combine efforts with it, basically. But uh, it, I don't know, it like fizzled out. So we talked about in the beginning, people are very hesitant to, I mean, I, I admire your boldness for just coming out and saying Marxism and communism. And I mean, it is, it's, it's a lot, it carries a lot of weight when you say those words, right? Um, Mm. I mean, what do you say to people that say, well, it's never worked, you know, and look at Russia and the economy collapses and it doesn't incentivize workers. And, you know, I mean, how do you handle that?
1: Um, Which one do I want to start with? <laughs> it's a lot, uh, right? <laughs> how do you incentivize workers? I always like that one. Um, well, incentive depends on the system, right? In capitalism, the probably the most valuable thing you can have is money because money is the universal equivalent of exchange, right? You can buy anything pretty much with money, right? Any commodity. So we incentivize people to work in the first place for money because if you don't have money, you can't buy the things you need in order to survive and if you can't do that, you will die, okay. So in a system where we meet people's needs, They don't need money to buy those things. They just get them, right? Same thing. Food, water, housing, healthcare, education, blah, 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 all that stuff. They just get that stuff. Well, how are you going to incentivize people to do anything at all? Well, the assumption is that for these needs to be carried out and given to everybody, uh, people still have to work, right? Mm -hmm. Like People still have to do stuff. We still have to produce. Well, how do you get people to do that? Okay, So how do you incentivize things without using money? Well, money won't even be useful in a communist society because you won't have commodities to buy. So what I would say, for example, and you could come up with others, if you want to incentivize people to do things, if you assume that it takes, we'll we'll just say a 40-hour work week, everybody's expected a 40-hour work week in whatever job that you decide you want to do to help society achieve these things, right? Right. I would say a good incentive would be time, right? Time is like the flip side of money for me. Um, we use money a lot of times to buy time back, right? Convenience, um, two-day shipping or overnight shipping. You can use money to save time, for example. Just in general, money, money saves time on things. But time is also useful in itself, right? Um, more time off, away from work, more vacation time. It's good for your ability to regenerate who you are as a person, do things that you like to do, discover things about yourself when you're not working all the time, right? Um, Having more more time off would be a very strong incentive, I would say. So let's say, how are you gonna incentivize people to be garbage collectors, for example? well, you could incentivize people by saying, instead of the 40 hours a week that we are asking of, of all people who are working, we're only going to ask you 30 hours a week to do that job. Well, hey, there's a lot of people who'd rather do 30 over 40 hour weeks. There's a lot of people who'd rather do that. Um, and that's a pretty, So that's a pretty big incentive right there. You can do that with any job you can imagine. You don't have to do it with hours a week. You can do it with vacation, with uh, the number of weeks off that year. You can incentivize other benefits that you can come up with. To me, when people ask, what does communism look like? I can't tell you that. I know it's a cop-out, but I can't tell you because I don't know the material conditions of that society. We won't know until we get there. So all I can do is offer you, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this, which is what we all should be doing. Because the point of what we're talking about is that what we have right now sucks ass. Mm-hmm. and We got we to dream up something better. So that's exactly what we should be doing. Maybe we could do it this way. Maybe we could do it this way. Maybe that makes me look like, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's fucking talking about. Like, that's the risk I take. But that's, that's the truth. We all need to be thinking, well, if we're not doing it this way, how could we do it another way? Mm-hmm. And that is actually helpful for coming up with a new society rather than just saying, communism sounds great on paper just doesn't work in real life and using again propaganda things that have been manufactured socially constructed for us to think a certain way about china soviet union even things like islam right I'm not talking about radical uh you know um muslim fundamentalism i'm not talking about that but think about the way the media has portrayed Islam since 9-11, for example. Um, And the fact that we all know that Islam is a mostly peaceful religion, just like Christianity, just like Judaism, but religions can be used for certain means for both sides. So um, maybe I'm rambling a little bit here, but the point being, um, we won't really know what it looks like until we start talking about what it, what we could do to get there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And that's, and that's what I'm doing right now. So what was, what was the other, uh, there's a couple of bits of that. Oh
0: question. yeah. There's a bunch of bits to it. Uh, so, okay. Like, I mean, it just opens up more questions for me. Like, so a garbage man or woman collecting mm-hmm. trash, that person might not need, an education, advanced education. Somebody like you, who would live in that society, does y- y- you believe that you would deserve the same, the same benefits?
1: The equality aspect that we hear about socialism or communism is a myth. the The point is not for people, everybody, to be equal and exactly the same. That's not the point. Mm-hmm. That's again, that's that's propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about equality, you hear some people, some philosophers actually talk about this idea of equality of outcome and equality of opportunity being like distinct things. And what they'll tell you, well, I think what bad faith actors will tell you is that socialism wants to create equality of outcome, right? Where everybody has the same outcome in the end, everybody is the same. And I would say that's the opposite of really what is trying to be accomplished. What's trying to be accomplished is the equality of opportunity. So how do you achieve equal opportunity for all? You meet all of their basic needs. And once you do that, people are then free to live the life that they actually want to live when they're not constrained by making money to meet their basic needs. Mm -hmm. That that's to me, this whole equality thing is, is a way to distract people from, what it actually is—it's a quality of opportunity—is giving people their basic needs in order to become individuals, to have the freedom to then become individuals, live the life that they want to live. Mm-hmm. Some people are content, maybe not going to school; that's not for them. They're content working thirty hours a week to help their community by picking up trash. Absolutely nothing wrong with that, mm-hmm. by the way. Um, for others, there—what they really get out of life is learning things is education is, I mean, to me, I would go to school forever because I, I loved being a student. I just like learning stuff. I would be a student forever. And like, that's fine with me if people want to do that. Um, but when you give people that opportunity to learn, they will figure out what they want to do with their lives, not constrained in that system. I'm saying not constrained by, well, I have to have a career where I'll actually make money. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm.
0: So, so so it, I mean, I understand what you're saying. And I, and I, I think that's a, a much more interesting way to look at it. Um, and like you said, we're just brainstorming, right? It doesn't exist. I mean, who's to really say, um, Mm -hmm. but then I guess if money doesn't exist in, in this type of society and you're the doctor and I'm, you know, a waitress, which I did for many years, um, then I guess, you know, I, again, would wonder, like, what does that look like? Is your house nicer than mine? You know, is are you able to go on fancy vacations that I can't go on? You know, I mean, then what? Because otherwise, I don't know why you would have somebody go to to medical school and residency and go through all of that training to have the exact same life, you know? Well,
1: well, again, I see where you're going with this, but again, we have to look through it as there's got to be a lot of other changes, Mm -hmm. right? Um, medical education probably doesn't need to look like this the way that it does. I mean, for, for your average, uh, doctor today it's four years of college four years of medical school three to seven years of residency maybe a fellowship thrown in there one to three years that's a lot of time um to me if in a society that works like the way we're just saying like in a communist society with no money i don't see medical school and becoming a doctor i don't see that trajectory being the same at all I don't think that residency currently is structured in a way that makes a lot of sense for a lot of residents. I think it'd look totally different. I think medical school would look totally different. Probably wouldn't be four years. It would be less. And uh, the curriculum would be completely redone. We want to do an episode on this actually at some point where we try to imagine a new medical school curriculum. Um, I mean, I was just saying everything you can imagine, like, has to be different like we can't that that's why i think people have a lot of trouble conceiving of what would a socialist or a communist society look like is because they try to swap things out of the current society just like take this take it out and put something else different in there and i think we should think about it as a completely different way of life when you when you think about the environmental movement, right? When you think about climate change, we're talking about a different way of life. If we actually want to combat climate change, we're talking about changing the way that we use energy, the type of energy that we use, right? We're talking about moving away from meat consumption and more toward a plant-based diet. We're talking about uh, different forms of transportation, probably going away from cars, going toward uh, trains. So maybe I'm biased because all socialists love trains, but that's another discussion. Um, you 're talking about a totally different way of living, um, and that 's why kind of the environmental movement and climate change activism is so closely tied to uh, leftist politics toward uh, tied to uh, socialist activity because they have the same vision for a different social fabric, like one where we take care of nature we don 't dominate it right it's it's a a way of thinking that the world is what we are, what we're from. it's not something we use for uh purely for our own benefit and advantage um so that's what I would tell those kinds of people. It's like oh well, will a doctor and a waitress live in well like will a waitress live in a bigger house than a doctor or is a doctor or whatever like I don't even think that housing in our current conception would be even the same um and again, we can talk about well, how do we house people in a um, in a society like that? And <laughs> that would be a fun discussion to have. Too much to talk about now, but uh, I, I have some ideas myself. Uh, you can edit this out. I mean, if you've ever looked up what an archaeology is, it's like a theoretical thing, um, but it's basically this giant structure where like thousands of people are living inside this big structure that has. Uh, agricultural space; it has work inside of it. It's totally self, a totally self-sustaining building where people live and work and play. Basically, um, that, that's a total mm-hmm. aside. I don't <laughs> like.
0: Okay, yeah. okay, we but won't get into the, it. The
1: point okay. being that um it, it's a different society entirely. Not just we're making these change; we're swapping things out. That's where I think people get caught up a lot of the time. Is we're not swapping things out; we are completely changing the structure and the social fabric. And that's a scary thought, admittedly.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. It's very scary, especially when, you know, we've seen such examples of how it can go wrong, yes. right? Um I mean, it's difficult It's look how bad capitalism is uh because of greed, right? greed will exist in any society. So it is difficult for me sometimes to imagine that a system like that wouldn't be exploited by someone at some point, right? Because if you look at capitalism, I mean, there's a lot of good things on paper you could say about it too. I mean, it drives innovation. I mean, look at the vaccine, for example, we had access to the vaccine sooner than like Italy, for example. And, you know, a lot of that you could attribute to our innovation and, you know, so you could say that, but then people exploit that, right? And then there's where we have a problem. So I I sometimes wonder, like, okay, we could swap it out. What if we did a whole new system, just flip it? There will be these, like, scumbags who are going to try to figure it out, and that's, I think, what we've seen in other countries who have tried to do things like this.
1: To some extent, that may be true. Um, in terms of vaccines... I think that the United States has such a hold on the market in terms of drug manufacturing that um, they have the ability to create, they had the ability to create those vaccines. You can call this the West, not just the United States, like Western Europe too. They have the ability because they, ha- they own all of this capital that goes toward research and development of, of drugs, right? And they work lock and step with the governments of these countries too. I mean, Pfizer and Merck and Gilead and all these, all these big, Ah, uh, drug companies they they get a lot of subsidies from the government for r and d and stuff. Um, so it's not just pure the magic of capitalist innovation. There's a lot of public subsidy coming from it too, which isn't really capitalism if you want to go the Adam Smith route, which is another discussion again. Um, I would argue that if resources were a little more uh, distributed a little more sanely, Um, We wouldn't have even had this problem where we're having spikes all over the world. Um, India was the most recent example in the last month. They had a horrific outbreak um, of COVID. Um, And what did we do? Uh, We said that we're not sending vaccines to help until it's too late, of course. Um, It doesn't matter that the United States has the innovation and the ability to create the vaccines. Who's getting them? Is the question. The question is, um, who's benefiting from that? It's Americans. And cool, that's great for us. But something that um, you brought up earlier is that people don't really pay attention to international news, right? Um, people in other countries are just uh, theoretical to, to a lot of people. Um, so when you think about the United, the, the capitalism that drives the United States um, that created all these vaccines and got us out of this crisis, maybe. I mean, I wouldn't really even argue that. It's very early. Some people are, are saying that. I don't think so. But who is it benefiting? That's the critical analysis. It's benefiting some Americans, not all. It's mostly benefiting uh, white Americans. It's mostly benefiting wealthy Americans, um, but not all. And who, that's who gets most of the vaccines, are Americans, Um if you look at the global south, if you look at uh, third world countries, developing countries, they're not getting the vaccines. So, what did American innovation and capitalism do for these people? Nothing. Um, it it creates a again, they got it, but I didn't. Um, it creates a tiered system. It creates hierarchy. It creates power differentials. These are all of the buzzwords that we don't like. This is the things that capitalism creates is inequality. It's a defining feature of capitalism and there is no way around that. It is built in. It's just built into, excuse me, built into the crust. So um, it doesn't, what I would say to it it doesn't matter that much that American capitalism is able to do these things because it only does it for people they are interested in, which is very few people outside of the United States. And we're talking about 7 billion people here. I mean, that's not insignificant.
0: So I mean, but that would be someone's argument, right? That look, we we drove this, we made, uh, we have Pfizer, we we did this, right? And that is part of our society. So you know, I mean, the, the the flip side of it could you could say is we had access to it because of capitalism, because we have these relationships, and you can say it's evil, the drug companies, and and you might be well, right. Well, other but other look people it, it again on the flip
1: side, other people in other countries. Why didn't we get it? Capitalism. It's always through, well, who is it benefiting? Right. Who actually is benefiting from this structure? And for us, that's great. But um, if most people do not benefit from it, then I don't think that capitalism in and of itself is beneficial. That's how I would uh, frame that, I guess. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, China has a vaccine. Russia has a vaccine. Cuba has developed a couple of vaccines. By the way, Cuba has one of the best healthcare systems in the world. I, I urge everybody to go and take a look at what Cuba is doing. We saw a little bit in terms of COVID. They were sending a lot of doctors to other countries to help out. And mm-hmm. and in, when we're putting the context of the Cuban economy, which has been strangled by Western sanctions for decades, uh, their ability to actually provide good healthcare for Cubans and what they're able to do is kind of fucking amazing actually. So, just a quick plug for the Cuban healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you're going to ask me a question.
0: <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. Um I guess I, it, I maybe that's the problem uh with uh, our country is very self-centered. Uh, a lot of the people, I mean, I saw that. I felt that when I was dealing April with a, a COVID ICU that was full, a hospital that's full and we're begging people to stay inside and wear masks. And some people said, you don't have a right to tell me that and I'm not going to do it. And I, and they still continue to not wear masks. I mean, there is a, it's me. I look out for me attitude in this country, especially in middle America where I grew up. Um, so, I mean, I think, unfortunately, there are going to be people that are just like, yeah, it benefits Americans, and that's all I care
2: about. That is
1: what capitalism creates, is an individualist kind of way of thinking, right? It creates, when you think about a market, again, um, if I don't get it, somebody else will outcompete me if I don't pay for this price or whatever, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So even just the logic of a market is it permeates through our way of thinking through other avenues, right? Um, It creates this sort of dogma. Everybody's looking over their shoulder. I got to take care of me and my own. Fuck everybody else, right? Um, Mm -hmm. How is that healthy for society at all? How does that not Mm -hmm. like um, destroy the fabric through which people – relate to one another at all. Like, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's kind of a sexy Mm -hmm. thing to be an individual, I I guess. Um, But in what sense? Right. An individual in terms of I'm going to step on everybody so that I can do well or an individual as in like, you know, I'm a person who's discovered who I am, my place in this life and what I'm able to provide for myself and for other people. To me, that's what an individual is, not just somebody who does it on their own. Um, Also, that seems like a sadder and lonelier life to be an individual, especially considering that humans are a social species at the end of the day. I don't think that greed is built into our DNA. I recommend that people check out the book um, by uh, Peter Kropotkin. It's called Mutual Aid. It goes into other kinds of animal societies that are... Centered around mutual aid and cooperation, and mutual aid has been a kind of a sexy buzzword during COVID too. Now, uh, for a mm-hmm. good reason, because humans are very much a cooperative species. Like I said, uh, so through this mutual aid and cooperation, that's how in this book these animal species were actually able to outcompete others because they banded together, not because they you know fought mm-hmm. as individuals. And humanity, the history of hum- humanity, is very similar. The, the people who went off on their own died. They didn't make it. You had to like find your buddies, form, form a clan, a tribe. That's how civilization started. Um, th- this whole, <laughs> again, it's, it's propaganda. This whole way of thinking that humans are inherently selfish and only thinking about themselves and are greedy uh, by nature. Where is there evidence for that beyond this current society that we live in? Because if you look back historically and anthropologically, that's not how society was in the past. And again, this is, again, why Marxists, communists, especially Marxists, talk a lot about the production, economy, material conditions. They inform every other aspect of our society, right? Um, that's, that's a buzzword called historical materialism, if you want, like, a Wikipedia term to look up later. I would, I would probably Google that one.